It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Boy, he has a lot to talk about. Uh, a new job offer from the NSA. <laughs> you won't believe the meme they chose. We'll also talk about Uber's CTO. He's been convicted of a heinous crime. You won't believe it when you hear it. And then he's going to talk about his discovery of a lovely little single board computer I know many of you are going to want to buy. Plus a look at source port randomization. It's a big show and it's all ahead next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 892, recorded Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. Source port randomization. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by SecureWorks. Are you ready for inevitable cyber threats? SecureWorks detects evolving adversaries and defends against them with a combination of security analytics and threat intelligence directly from their own counter-threat unit. Visit secureworks.com slash twit to get a free trial of Tagus Extended Detection and Response, also known as XDR. And by new relic use the data platform made for the curious right now you can get access to the whole new relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data per month free forever no credit card required sign up at newrelic.com slash security now and by bitwarden get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online get started with a free trial of a teams or enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit it's time for security now with this guy right here steve gibson the star of our show hello steve <laughs> yo leo i've silenced my phone so we won't be interrupted by no yabba dabba doos no yabba dabba doos <laughs> i'm looking forward to the day when i have to shut those off because they're so annoying uh, every five not, seconds another spin not there yeah not there yet but i'm working in that direction i have some news on that front that i'll share later so we're uh episode 892 for October 11th, and I titled this one Source Port Randomization, which is a subject we've spoken of often, but it came up again as a consequence of a mistake that the authors of the Linux kernel recently fell into. So I think that's going to be interesting. We have I know that we have a large Linux following among our listeners, the, 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 the techie most of of ours so uh, we're going to look at uh first a massive customer information leak which arose from a surprising source uh also meta notes that uh they, they did some analysis to discover where their users credentials are being most harvested uh, and in a in a weird industry first uber's ex cto has been convicted of some Ooh, interesting yeah. misbehavior. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. We talked about that uh, when it happened, I think. When he, when he uh, got caught, anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, and that was two years ago uh, that, that, the, uh, that the allegations were uh, made and he's, that the indictment happened last week. So uh, we have more and much more, or, or I mean, he, the, the, the outcome of, of the trial, rather, he was found guilty. We'll talk about that. We've got more much more 
cryptocurrency industry turmoil, uh, which just <laughs> nonstop. Oh, my God, Leo. But I mean, it's just it's like it's creative turmoil. It's like what? Uh, we also have a new appointee in the UK a month ago who has decided that she wants to drop the UK's use of the GDPR. Uh, we uh, oh, Also, the NSA is looking for next summer interns. I'll provide information for our listeners who might be interested in signing up. IBM has learned that incident responders are feeling quite stressed out. And Microsoft continues to fumble their Exchange Server response to the most recent Exchange Server problems that we started talking about last week. As I mentioned, I've got news of Spinrite, and I'm going to share my discovery of a lovely little single board computer, basically Steve's Dream SBC. Um, and then after sharing some listener feedback, as I said, we're going to look at a recent mistake made in the Linux kernel that allowed its users to be tracked online. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the recent mistake in the Linux kernel that would fry some users' monitors. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, they were warning people not to download the new kernel. Wow. Uh, I think they fixed it. But, uh, yeah, because uh, that's something – I mean, that's amazing that you could do something – it's software that would destroy hardware. Back in the CRT days, it was possible to mess up the right. H and V sync in right. a way right. that would actually damage right. the, the circuitry. But, yeah, in, in an LCD world, that's... I'll look into it. I'll find out what really it is, and I'll let you know. Uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. We love our sponsors. They make Security Now possible. And today, we're sponsored by the good folks at SecureWorks who are here to help. By the way, for your next incident, I'm going to give you an 800 number in a second. I want you to write it down. Uh, SecureWorks is a leader in cybersecurity. I know you know their name. Building solutions for security experts by security experts. SecureWorks offers superior threat detection and rapid incident response, all while making sure customers are never locked into a single vendor. This month, October, is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Perfect. It's spooky, spooky season and cybersecurity awareness month. Now is a good time to raise awareness about digital security and empower everybody to protect their data from cybercrime. SecureWorks has the perfect solution. In fact, now would be a great time to get Tagus XDR. In 2022, cybercrime will cost the world $7 trillion this year. By 2025, in three years, the figure $10.5 trillion. Trillion with a T. Trillion. In 2021, last year, ransomware totaled $20 billion in damages, and attacks occurred every 11 seconds that we know of. But by 2031, ransomware is projected to cost $265 billion every year and strike every two seconds. And honestly, I think that's an optimistic prediction. I think it's going to be far worse. So you need to make sure your organization is not the next victim with SecureWorks Tagus XDR. SecureWorks Tagus provides superior detection, identifying more than 470 billion security events every day, and then prioritizing the true positive alerts by, you know, scrubbing out the alert noise and allowing organizations to focus on the real threats. And they're out there. In addition, Tagus offers unmatched response, automated response actions. That's important because they can eliminate threats before damage is ever done. They're that fast. With SecureWorks Tagus Managed XDR, you can easily leverage SecureWorks experts 
to respond and investigate threats on your behalf, which means you cut dwell times, decrease operational burden, reduce cost, and with 24-7 by 365 coverage, it doesn't matter whether you experience a Christmas Day security event or half your team's out sick. You know you can trust that SecureWorks has your back. Many companies right now are facing, in fact, a shortage of security talent. SecureWorks acts as an extension of your security team on day one, alleviating cybersecurity talent gaps, allowing you to customize the approach and the coverage level you need. And remember I said there's a number to call. What when when If you've already found an intruder in your system, you do not have to worry. Write down this number. Whether you're a customer or not, 1-800-BREACHED. 1-800-BREACHED. That number will connect you with the SecureWorks Emergency Incident Response Team. They're there 24-7, are there to help you, provide you with the assistance you need. They can respond to, they can even remediate a cyber incident or data breach on the spot. So remember that number, 1-800-BREACHED. At SecureWorks, you'll learn more about the ways today's threat environment is, is evolving and the risks it can present to your organization, including case studies, They've got reports from their very prestigious, very smart counter threat unit and more. Visit secureworks.com slash twit. Get a free trial of Tagus XDR. XDR, I should tell you, stands for Extended Detection and Response, and that's what SecureWorks does. Secureworks.com slash twit. SecureWorks, defending every corner of cyberspace secureworks.com slash twit. We thank them so much for their support and for the very important work they do, not just for their customers, but for all of us. Speaking of important work, Steve Gibson has the picture of the week. (laughs) Uh, This is just going to crack me up. For those who are not seeing the show notes or the video, um, uh, what we have is a Tesla, clearly recognizable by everyone, that apparently doesn't have much faith in its ability to find the next charging station. Uh, And so I titled this DIY hybrid uh, strapped to the back of it in what looks like sort of a permanent installation. It's got a gas electric, a gas powered electric generator and a bunch of gas cans. So, I guess if the battery <laughs> runs low, this thing being sort of a DIY hybrid, you'd just, you know, cruise off to the side of the road, uh, gas up the generator, plug your car into itself, uh, in, into this little caboose that, <laughs> that it's got, and uh, charge her back up, and then you're ready to go again. So, anyway, n- not specifically anything about security, but I just thought this was kind of humorous. So, yeah, Uh Interesting. Um, The first piece of our show was a tweet that came from our last week's topic source. Uh, Remember Jacopo Tediosi? Uh, He was one of the two uh, Italian researchers who discovered the serious Akamai vulnerability. Anyway, he knew about the podcast and he said, thanks at SGGRC for talking about my Akamai vulnerability on the Security Now podcast. And he gave a link to it uh, at twit.tv. I, I saw he said that the, tweet. That was so cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And he said, the analysis and explanations you made were very accurate, exclamation point. So anyway, Jacobo, thank you for he didn't, uh, he didn't, following up. He didn't call you out on mispronouncing his name, though. 
And I actually, I replied to him politely, thanked him for his tweet, and said, I hope I didn't mangle the pronunciation of your name t- t- too severely. So, right. He's probably used to it. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So, uh, it turns out that there's a non-security breach way, like a, a means, for a user of a cryptocurrency exchange to have their name, their account balance, and all of their transactions exposed to the public. And that's if the currency exchange files for bankruptcy. Whoops. Uh, Something known as the Celsius Network cryptocurrency platform deliberately exposed the names and complete transaction histories of hundreds of thousands of its customers. Okay, now, time out. As an aside, hundreds of thousands of its customers? Leo, what what most mystifies me is how these random, you know, also ran startups acquire hundreds of thousands of customers. You know, what are people thinking? Who are these people? And, and you know, it's just a mystery. Anyway, the company filed a, get this, 14,000 532 page document because of course lots of transactions for all of its hundreds of thousands of customers thus requiring a 14,532 page document as part of its bankruptcy proceedings the week before last that contained the names and recent transactions of every user on its platform the judge in this case, allowed, the bankruptcy judge allowed the company to redact the document, but only their customers' physical and email addresses were allowed to be removed because the rest of the information was required in their disclosure during their regular bankruptcy procedures and proceedings. So the document, for anyone who's interested, is available via PACER and other legal document portals. So nah, not so private if the cryptocurrency platform that you're using goes belly up and, you know, chooses this means of shutting themselves down. Just something to keep in mind. Um, A posting last Friday by two security-focused employees of Meta, you know, Facebook's parent, disclosed the results of a recent search through the Apple and Google app stores. They explained that they had identified more than 400 malicious Android and iOS apps targeting Facebook's users, which were being used to steal specifically. I mean, the the reason these apps were created was to steal their Facebook login credentials. They reported their findings to Apple and Google and have asked the users they identified to change their passwords since their credentials have almost certainly been compromised. Now, I thought that the nature of the come-ons to entice the downloads of these apps was interesting. So they were, first of all, majority were photo editors, including those that claim to allow you to turn yourself into a cartoon. Those apparently are very popular among Facebook users. Also, we had VPNs claiming to boost browsing speed or grant access to blocked content or websites. In other words, like solving a problem that that people have. Oh, this will make your browsing twice as fast, whatever. You know, probably not true, but it got them to download. 
Also, phone utilities such as flashlight apps <laughs> that claim to brighten your phone's flashlight. Yes, get more light out of your flashlight if you download this uh, phone utility. Then we had mobile games, which were falsely promising higher quality 3D graphics. Health and lifestyle apps, you know, horoscopes and fitness trackers. Uh, business or ad management apps claiming to provide hidden or unauthorized features not found in official apps by, you know, which are being offered by the tech platforms. So, interestingly, by far the majority at nearly half, 42.6% of those 400 plus apps were all photo editors. Very popular. Next Dropping down to 15.4% were the business utilities, then the phone utilities at 14.1%, and games at 117 and the others making up the, the result. So, you know, standard advice applies. First of all, try hard, I mean really try, to avoid downloading just every tasting, you know, tasty-looking goodie that you see. Um, th- th- We've said this before, and I think it's still true. There is a very small probability, you know, given the vast number of good apps that are out there, the probability is, is you know, diminishingly small that that something next, something more that you download, that, that, that you download will be malicious. But the probability is not zero. So if you can and you care about not, having malware running in your device, don't do it. Um, and don't be too quick to click the download link. Do as much research about the app and its reputation as possible. And I would suggest you do that off the platform. That is, you know, go elsewhere. Don't rely on th- that in-place uh, reputation because the other thing these guys are known to do is to load themselves up with with faked you know five star ratings and thumbs up and things so look elsewhere for other uh, sources of reputation so you know again be careful be cautious but just know as, as we've noted before that some percentage of these things in the app stores, much as Apple and Google both are, you know, trying diligently to keep these these things clean and scrubbed, you know, they exist for a while on the on the app platform. Okay, Uber's former CSO, their chief security officer by the name of Joe Sullivan, was found guilty at trial due to his actions following a 2016 data breach at Uber. And, and I'm wording this carefully because there was actually some misreporting about this in the press. It's like, you know, it, it, the, the, the implication was for reporters who are not being careful that it was that Joe was was responsible for the breach. Not at all the case. Right. I mean, he's a C-suite guy. Those guys don't get their hands dirty. Anyway, We'll get to that in a second. Reading from a statement made on August 20th, 2020. So as I said, two years ago when these charges were filed uh, in the Northern District of California, they the, they they uh, put out a, a statement about the fact that this was being done. They said the complaint describes how Sullivan played a pivotal role in responding to Federal Trade Commission, FTC, inquiries 
about Uber's cybersecurity. Uber had been hacked in September 2014. Okay, so that's a different, that's two years before, a, a different instance. Had been hacked in September 2014, and the FTC was gathering information about that 2014 breach. The FTC demanded responses to written questions and required Uber to designate an officer to provide testimony under oath on a variety of topics. Sullivan assisted in the preparation of Uber's responses to the written questions and was designated to provide sworn testimony on a variety of issues. On November 14th, 2016, so near the end of 2016, approximately 10 days after providing his testimony to the FTC, Sullivan received an email from a hacker informing him that Uber had been breached again. Sullivan's team was able to confirm the breach within 24 hours of his receipt of the email. Rather than report the 2016 breach, Sullivan allegedly took deliberate steps to prevent, and this is allegedly because it's two years ago, now it's been found to be true at trial, allegedly took deliberate steps to prevent knowledge of the breach from reaching the FTC. So he tried to bury this. For example, they said, Sullivan sought to pay the hackers off by funneling the payoff through a bug bounty program. Uber paid the hackers $100,000 in Bitcoin in December of 2016, despite the fact that the hackers refused to provide their true names. In addition, Sullivan sought to have the hackers sign non-disclosure agreements. The agreements contained a false representation that the hackers did not take or store any data, when in fact they had. When an Uber employee asked Sullivan about this false promise, which was in the nondisclosure, Sullivan insisted that the language stay in the nondisclosure agreements. Moreover, after Uber personnel were able to identify two of the individuals responsible for the breach, Sullivan arranged for the hackers to sign fresh copies of the non-disclosure agreements. Love that piece. I, <laughs> don't tell I Now, yeah, don't tell anybody uh, what happened. And oh, by the way, now that we know who you are, we want you to actually execute the non-disclosure agreements, <laughs> which would be binding under your true name. And they gave him a bug bounty. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're just going to say that you found a problem, not that you actually attacked us using it. Appalling. Yes. Though, so the new agreements retained the false condition that no data had been obtained. Uber's new management ultimately discovered the truth and disclosed the breach publicly and to the FTC nearly a year later in November of 2017. Since that time, Uber has responded to additional government inquiries. So all of that was proper. The criminal complaint against Sullivan alleges Sullivan deceived Uber's new management team about the 2016 breach. Specifically, Sullivan failed to provide the new management team with critical details about the breach. In August of 2017, Uber named a new chief executive officer, you know, a new CEO. In September of 2017, Sullivan briefed Uber's new CEO about the 2016 incident by email. 
Sullivan asked his team to prepare a summary of the incident, but after he received their draft summary, he edited it. His edits removed details about the data that the hackers had taken and falsely stated that payment had been made only after the hackers had been identified. That wasn't the case. The two hackers, identified by Uber, were prosecuted in the Northern District of California. Both pleaded guilty on October 30th, 2019, to computer fraud conspiracy charges and now await sentencing. The criminal complaint makes clear that both hackers chose to target and successfully hack other technology companies and their users' data after Sullivan failed to bring the Uber breach to the attention of law enforcement. In other words, by not dealing with law enforcement forthrightly, the hackers who'd been identified continued to roam free to hack and damage other companies as a direct consequence of Sullivan's actions of covering all this up. So, at trial, Sullivan was found guilty of lying to authorities and obstruction of justice. Those were the charges, lying to authorities and obstruction of justice. Nothing to do directly with Uber being hacked. It's like, you know, we know that kind of thing happens. The trial, however, was a landmark case, being the first time a chief security officer faced criminal charges, indirectly at least, relating to a security breach though it was only, you know, obviously indirectly about the breach itself. Joe's big mistake was his attempt to cover up and mislead investigators and ultimately uh, landed him, as we know now, in some very hot water. Interestingly, Joe was once a prosecutor in the same office that had charged him. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. He should have known better. Well, I was thinking that maybe he thought he knew how to finesse the system, oh, right? Yeah. Like having once worked there, he figured, hey, I know how to get around this. Gee. So he now faces up to eight years in prison and up to half a million dollars in fines, which will be determined at his upcoming sentencing hearing. What has never been made clear in the reporting that I've seen is why he did this. He was a C-level executive for a major corporation, Uber. Guys at that level aren't pulling wires and getting their hands dirty. You know, they attend meetings and golf. So it was almost certainly not directly Joe's fault that somewhere in a back room, two attackers somehow crawled into Uber's network. What I wonder is whether he had a big hunk of Uber stock mm. that that he worried would collapse mm-hmm. in value yeah. if the news of this got out. Yes. If so, perhaps he believed that he could cover the whole thing up from the top to protect Uber's market value. In any event, I imagine he regrets that decision now. Can't spend that stock in prison. No, you can't. <laughs> no. So, more cryptocurrency chaos. Uh, I believe that this podcast listeners would be well served for me to periodically note the ongoing chaos that exists within the cryptocurrency world. Uh, It's not my position to advise anyone of anything, but being armed with realistic viewpoints can only be valuable. To that end, the news is that the multi-cryptocurrency exchange platform 
Binance was hacked. Binance has paused its Binance Smart Chain, BSC as they call it, blockchain bridge, after a threat actor used an exploit there to generate and steal 2 million Binance coins, that the abbreviation for that uh, currency is BNB. That they are currently worth around $560 million. Now, the thieves were unable to make off with all $560 million because uh, Binance reacted quickly to what they discovered. But the bad guys still absconded with 20% of the $560 million in illegitimately created funds. So $112 million worth of the uh, the Binance coins. So, not bad for a day's work. We were talking about this on Sunday on uh, Twit, and apparently the Bridge software, uh, which is what allows you to move uh, crypto from one place Chain. to another, right, uh, is a very common source of hacks. And it's, this is the fourth or fifth massive hack of a, a crypto bridge of some kind in the last couple of years. It's a, a huge vulnerability. And, of course, you know, that's where the money is. It's like you could tap into the oil pipeline and just say, yeah, give me some of that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, uh, wow. Okay. And so while we're on the subject of bad ideas, I'll also note that the Zcash blockchain has been subjected to a spam attack. Yes, spam isn't just for email anymore. (laughs) This was done by creating bloated but inexpensive shielded transactions on the Zcash blockchain. And as a consequence of this attack, which has been underway since June, the size of the Zcash blockchain has more than tripled to over 100 gig. As the Zcash blockchain has grown huge, Purely as a function, as a result of bogus transactions, they have to store these, every these, one of these tiny transactions. Yes, the cryptocurrency cryptocurrency experts now expect Zcash node servers, which must retain a full local copy of the entire right. blockchain, right. to start failing due to memory shortage. So, okay, all of this points the the, the only way. That you can regard this is to an extremely immature technology coupled with a gold rush attitude. Recall then the actual California gold rush between 1848 and 1855. With very few exceptions, the only people who made money were those who were selling the gold digging, panning and sluicing supplies to the hopeful miners. You know, it wasn't it was it wasn't those who were panning for gold. It was the people who sold them their pans. No, in fact, I saw just the other day at auction a pair of Levi's found an old coal mine from the 1880s sold for seventy six thousand dollars. So they're still making money, <laughs> still making money. And, you know, you, you, you can't get graphics cards anymore. Right. Because because all of the mining uh, uh, rigs well, that's are, have like, sucked up all the GPUs. Now you everywhere. can because there, there's no more money to be made because of proof of work. 
right. a proof of stake. So uh, now right. you can get a lot of highly used <laughs> GPUs. <laughs> They're flooding the market. I think this would be a good time to take a break, and then we're going to talk about the UK's plans to drop out of the GDPR. And actually, you know, I, I've, in conjunction with NFTs, I've been saying this for a while, the companies oh, yeah. that make money in NFTs are the people minting them. They're, well, look, they're look collecting Kevin. The, yeah, they're collecting the gas fees. Well, Kevin made $50 million, his proof collective, and then he raised another $50 million. <laughs> Because it's such a good. Leo, uh, where where is this money? Who are these people? There is there something. I hope something. I somewhere. sincerely hope that for the most part they're Bitcoin bros. They're crypto, you know, millionaires and billionaires who are reinvesting. Like the, win- the, win- the Winkle Dingies or the Winkle Dingies down. In, yeah, and I pray it's them and not some poor working stiff who says, yeah, my stocks aren't doing so well. Maybe I'll get into this crypto thing. Oh. But unfortunately, you know, because Robinhood and all these other, uh, uh, you know, easy trading apps uh, sell crypto now, I suspect that a lot of this is coming from people who can't afford the, the losses. And it's very sad, you know. Of course, my stock market portfolio has tumbled even more. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I should buy some Bitcoin. A little doge. Who knows? Our show today brought to you by New Relic. Uh, I am, as you know, a big fan uh, of developers. Engineers are smart. They're curious. They're first to try new technology. They actually want to know how things work and why they work. They're the ones that read the documentation. That's why so many engineers, some of my favorite people, turn to New Relic. Because New Relic gives you the information, the data you need to know about what you build. It shows what's happening in your software lifecycle and your entire software stack. One place, you don't have to look into a bunch of different tools and then kind of correlate them somehow, make the connections in your brain or manually. The tools you need, all in one place, a single pane of glass, as they say, so you can see exactly what's happening. You can pinpoint issues in your software stack down to the line of code. You know exactly what's going on, why there's a problem, and you can fix it quickly. That's why dev and ops teams at DoorDash and GitHub, Epic Games, more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. When teams come together around data, real data lets you triage problems and be confident decisions, reduce the time needed to implement resolutions because you're using data, not opinions. Use the data platform made for you. Made for the curious. Right now, you get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data per month, free, forever. 100 gigabytes of data a month, the entire New Relic platform, all their tools, free forever. Sign up at newrelic.com slash security now. Newrelic.com slash security now. I don't know why you wouldn't do this. Go right now. Get that free, I want to say trial. It's not free trial. Get that free service forever. No credit card required. New Relic. N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash security. No. You know, I I figured I was probably an old relic. <laughs> so so uh, I just looked up the definition. It says, an object surviving from an earlier time, mm-hmm. especially one of historical or sentimental interest. And Bingo. I think that works. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. You know, I'm, doing, old I'm getting ready for, uh, uh, my, I love the advent of code coding competition in December. I'm getting ready for it. I'm trying to do yep. it in Lisp. 
and I'm sitting there. And uh, wait, I thought you were going to do a different, a new language. I was uh, looking at Julia, and then, but you convinced oh, yeah, me. Julia. Anything that starts indexes uh, arrays is at one. Oh, it, as, yeah. no. Mm-mm. I know. I, no. I really love Lisp. So I'm on day seven of the first year, 2015, and I need to do bitwise operations. And I'm thinking, if I were Steve, <laughs> this would be easy. <laughs> he lives in the bits. But now I got integers and I got to figure out. And actually, it's not it's not a problem except when I get to the, the two's complement representation. I'm getting numbers going negative and I've got to figure out a way to just, you know, ignore that. Uh, it, you there you wouldn't are. have to think about it. Yeah, of course. There, there are, are an amazing number of really cool bitwise hacks. That I know. Available. In fact, I have there. a book that's almost entirely bitwise hacks. I was ah, going to ask you this because I want to give it to you. Have you ever read Hacker's Delight? No. <gasps> okay. Don't buy it. <laughs> I am going to send it to you. It is. Cool. It is the classic, cool. and it is almost entirely like weird bitwise hacks. And like sort of edge cases that, that turn out to be useful. That, that, yeah, that, that's yeah. the whole idea is once you know this yeah. idiom, you'll use it all the time. And you, of all people, because you work in Assembler, this is going to be like, oh, yeah. You probably know 90% of them. But it's a good book. Oh, I'm going to send it to you. That's fun. Cool. <laughs> Thank good. you. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm not sure whether this is good or bad. Though I'm leaning heavily toward bad, for a reason I'll explain. Last Monday, Michelle Donnellan the U.K. Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport. That's literally her title. The U.K. Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport. Luckily, Leo, for your sake, they didn't say cyber. Uh, <laughs> sport's bad enough. <laughs> sport's bad enough. I agree. That one, I, 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 like, I said, wait a minute. Did I, is that We don't have wrong? in this no. country, we don't have a minister of sport. But a surprisingly large number of countries do. And I watch, the reason I know is I watch the, the Formula One the, races. I understand it's plural. It's, it's supposed to be sports. And they it's call it like maths. Maths it's, it's, and sport. It's not, like, it's not like I'm playing card. I'm playing cards. <laughs> but it's maths, plural. So go figure. What is it? Oh, Winston, is Chir- Winston Churchill yeah. said is America and England, uh, two countries separated by the same language. <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, she was appointed to her position of digital culture, media, and sport about a month about a month ago. On this last Monday, she announced plans for the UK to drop the EU's GDPR in favor of designing their what? own. I know their own new data protection system. Uh, and this is the point where I groan. Uh, Michelle has well, she was speaking at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, where she said that the UK government will look to pass new legislation inspired by data protection laws used in Israel, Japan, South Korea, Canada, and New Zealand. Now, on the one hand, that sounds maybe better than the GDPR, but the concern is that we only have the one single global internet and that was the whole point of the internet in the first place you know that's what makes it so useful and amazing but now governments are getting into the act of deciding how the internet should uniquely treat each of their own precious citizens 
even if that differs from how the Internet treats everyone else. You know, governments want to have borders, but the Internet was designed to ignore them. And so basically we have a clash of fundamental principles here. And it's going to be a mess, Leo. And so my concern about, you know, the e, the, the U.K., leaving the GDPR is, okay, now we're going to have the UKPR or UK GDP. Who knows what? But, wow, you know, one more mess to deal with. Okay, uh, this seems cool. Rob Joyce is the director of cybersecurity at uh, his Twitter handle is at NSA Gov. <clears throat> he recently tweeted that the NSA is looking, now looking, for next summer interns. He wrote, it's never too early to make summer plans, exclamation point, at NSA Cyber 2023 summer internships are open. CompSci, and that's, uh, he's got a, a number for it, CompSci 1191813, Cybersecurity, one one nine one eight one six and engineering one one nine one eight one seven. He says apply at intelligencecareers.gov slash NSA. Use the numbers above, find your passion. Hurry, applications close on Halloween. So <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> we're in yeah. We're in the we're in the Halloween month. So through the be, through the rest of this month, applications are open to apply to the NSA for a summer insured uh, internship. And this you don't think this is a joke? No, I checked. It's at I mean the picture the picture is weird. Maybe they're try, this is how somebody who is not at all cool tries to look like they're cool. I think it's a little you know, creepy. <laughs> it's a little uh, weird. It, it is right from the Twitter feed. Uh, if, 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 if you go to Twitter and do uh, put in uh, what's his handle again? It's uh, Rob a, at oh, a, NSA yeah. Cyber NSA. Oh no, sorry. NSA, NSA Gov NSA underscore CS Director is the is the Twitter handle. And but you could search oh, for Bob right. Joyce, probably. Right, right, yeah, right, right. NSA, and and actually, I did that, and it came right up. So yeah. it's like that's actually what they wow. what he tweeted. Wow, it reminds yeah. me you 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 nailed it. It's somebody who is not cool, thinking what would what would the kids do? Uh-huh. <laughs> What's the meme? Exactly. What's the meme yeah. I could post? And then uh, you know it does remind me a little bit of Goodwill Hunting and uh, the very famous scene where they ask uh, uh, Matt Damon to uh, apply. I can't remember if it's the, I think it is the NSA. If you haven't watched that, that would be oh, a good response. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And that's a great movie. Where he goes, he does a great monologue about, well, I'll tell you why I am not going to work for the NSA. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I'm sure, I tell you what, if you read the thread, the responses to this tweet, it will be in it. I almost am certain. Anyway, that's great. Okay, wow. so uh, IBM did a survey. Uh, we've talked a lot about the job opportunities available across the security industry. There are many. They are plentiful. Uh, and they show no sign of diminishing. I think, you know, the, the stuff we talk about, the needs of the, of the industries we uh, describe are only growing greater. But 
they can be demanding and it can interfere with other life priorities. IBM recently conducted a survey of 1,100 professional cyber incident responders. Here are the seven takeaways from the survey. First, cybersecurity incident responders said that the sense of duty to help and protect others and the businesses was by far the most influential factor attracting them to their profession. Continuous opportunity to learn and being rooted in problem solving followed as the most influential factors. So, you know, people who want to help, that's cool. At the same time, number two, sense of responsibility toward their team slash client and managing stakeholder expectations were ranked as the most stressful aspects of responding to cyber incidents. Around half of the 1,100 selected these among their top three stressors. So they were stressed by the sense of responsibility toward their team or client and managing stakeholder expectations, you know, like solving the problem for their bosses. Third takeaway, according to 48% of responders, the average incident response engagement is two to four weeks and nearly 30% say an incident response engagement lasts more than four weeks on average. The overwhelming majority states that it's not uncommon to be assigned to respond to two or more incidents that overlap. Fourth takeaway is that the first three days of responding to an attack are seen as the most stressful. Additionally, more than a third say they are working more than 12 hours a day during the most stressful period of the engagement. The fifth takeaway is that 81%, so four out of five, a little over four out of five, of cybersecurity incident responders think the rise of ransomware, no, no surprise, has exacerbated the stress psychological demands required during a cybersecurity incident response, right? Because the whole, their enterprise is frozen and is, is under threat. Sixth takeaway, two-thirds, 67% of cybersecurity incident responders said they experienced stress and anxiety in their daily lives as a result of responding to an incident. And finally, nearly 65%, again, two-thirds of cybersecurity incident responders have sought mental health assistance as a result of responding to cybersecurity wow. incidents. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. To that end, the majority of respondents, 84%, did also say that they do have access to adequate mental health support resources. So there are, you know... They're able to get help, but I mean, it. They're they're under tremendous pressure, um, probably not chronically, but acutely when something happens. So I think this suggests two things. First, cybersecurity incident response may not be for everyone. You know, it's probably you know. Think about your personality type. Does you know? Does the do you like like adrenaline? <laughs> <laughs> Did you, you know, are your adrenals in good shape and providing you with what you need? 
um, you know, I, I think seriously, that should be a consideration. It must to, be high know, pressure. I mean, very yes. intense when it happened. Uh, Probably a lot of times sitting around and then all of a sudden, boom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, imagine something gets into your network and it's doing bad stuff and it's up to you. I mean, like it's not it's it's you, not anybody else. It's and you know, and like alarms are going off and people's computers are crashing and it's like. Yeah, that's not when you want to slip the blood pressure cuff on your arm to, you know, see how you're doing. The other thought I had was that, you know, although you'll certainly want to be a salaried employee, if there's any way to work in bonuses to your contract for when the job does disrupt your life, you know, that should be a consideration too. Being the only one left at work, working all night, while everyone else is home laughing and sleeping is much easier if you know that your special contribution is being valued with some additional compensation. And if you have a significant other in your life, it can make it easier to explain to them, honey, I, I, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I can't come home. So, uh, Anyway, I thought that was interesting. It is, you know, we've all, we've only talked about all the opportunities so far. And uh, this survey of 1,100 people says, yeah, you know, there's lots of opportunity, but it's not a cakewalk all the time if, if something nasty crawls into your enterprise that you're responsible it's for. It's probably a lot like being a, a first responder, a firefighter, an EMT, yep. a, a police officer. It's, uh, you know, when things go go haywire they go and you have to be yep. there and you probably need a certain kind of constitution right i think that's the case yeah. i think that's the, the right case stuff I mean, if, I, just cool there are certain pressure right and i i'm sure there are people who like who like thrive on the idea of of that much need being piled on them when their shoulders are able to handle the burden yeah we right? have a we I have mean, a picture know? of that person here from the <laughs> The NSA director's uh, tweet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So speaking of being stressed out, something's going on over at Microsoft, and it's not good. The topic is the status of Microsoft's mitigations for that pair of zero-day exchange server vulnerabilities we discussed last week. Those were the new pair discovered while being used in the wild, exploited in the wild, in the networks of clients of that Vietnamese cybersecurity firm, GTSC. First, in updating myself for today's podcast, I checked to see whether patches for these two new bad problems were available. That would be the optimal answer, right? Get it fixed. But after at least a week and a half, and it turns out uh, a lot more than that, as we'll see in a second, the answer to that is no. No emergency patch for Exchange Server so far. Then, since there was news last week that the initial mitigations proposed by Microsoft had immediately been bypassed, as I noted last week, I I wasn't quite sure of some of the language, but Bleeping Computer said uh, they confirmed, yep, those that 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 original mitigation posed proposed by Microsoft has been bypassed. I went to see what Microsoft had done since then. And they really appear to be chasing their tail. They updated their guidance for scripts for IIS mitigation on the on October 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th. 
Each time they're correcting typos or making small tweaks to the script, apparently <laughs> trying to get it right. It's like what one of the comments has removed a space What's that was the unnecessary. Least we can do. That's <laughs> so oh. bad. Oh God. So nothing about this response feels like the A team has been brought in. And then we learn that Microsoft has been aware of this problem for much longer than was previously known. They were, in air quotes, investigating it after become aware of it back in August in their posting titled Analyzing Attacks Using the Exchange Vulnerabilities CVE 2022-41040 and 41082, Microsoft wrote, MSTIC observed activity related to a single activity group in August 2022 that achieved initial access and compromised exchange servers by chaining 2022-41040 and 2022-41082 in a small number of targeted attacks. This is in August. These attacks, they wrote, installed the Chopper web shell to facilitate hands-on keyboard access, which the attackers used to perform Active Directory reconnaissance and data exfiltration. Oh, so apparently nothing to worry about? It's like, what? In August. They said Microsoft observed these attacks in fewer than 10 organizations globally. MSTIC assesses with medium confidence that the single activity group is likely to be a state-sponsored organization. Then they said, Microsoft researchers were investigating these attacks to determine if there was a new exploitation vector in exchange involved. Okay, make that yes. When, they said, the Zero Day Initiative, ZDI, disclosed CVE 2022-41040 and 2022-41082 to Microsoft Security Response Center, MSRC, in September of 2022. So, gee, look at that. Exchange server is being attacked. Hmm. What's for lunch? Unbelievable. They were investigating. While attacks were underway, 10 organizations they had identified, and now we're, we're what? Uh, we don't know when in August. So somewhere between one and a half and two and a half months downstream of this, of them seeing that Exchange Server is being exploited by, through a, by a remote execution exploit, which is taking companies over and allowing bad guys to perform reconnaissance on enterprises' active directory servers. And Microsoft is uh, updating their advice after this became public every day, removing extraneous spaces from their scripts. Not impressive. In Spinrite news, I have finished all of the redesign, and Spinrite is working, as far as I know. 
But that knowledge doesn't yet go very far. So now I start the final work of inducing known data errors and watching Spinrite perform its sector-by-sector data recovery. That's what I'll be working on tonight and subsequently until I've demonstrated to myself that Spinrite is, in fact, ready. That's interesting. How do you make data errors happen? um, It turns out in older drives and i've got i have a two terabyte c i have a three actually two terabyte seagates and a bunch of older mac stores you had the ability there there was a command called read long where where you told the drive uh don't bother with error correction just give me the raw data it's called a long read because it's the data plus the error correction code, which is tagged on at the end. And the, the ability that that facility is one of the ways that Spinrite is able to perform d- data recovery, even on sectors that the drive says are not good. Well, there's even though they're not good, there's still something there. Spinrite is able to say, give me what you got and let me worry about it. And that's where this the, the, the Dynastat, the, the dynamic statistics comes in. So do you well, go to a out, known bad sector and, and then ask, do a long read? or No, because there's the complement command, write long. Ah, where so you I'm can able screw to, it up. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm able to induce varying length bit errors uh, and cause the drive to do what it's going to do when it encounters it for the first time. And so that allows me to deliberately poison sectors in various ways and then and then as if that hadn't happened have Spinrite come along and watch what it does in order to recover the data. So it's very cool. Unfortunately, it's been re- th- those things have been removed from newer drives, but I've got plenty of older drives where it's still feasible and even a 2 terabyte drive. So uh, I've got lots of ability to do yeah, that. That's really interesting. I didn't know. That. Yeah, it's really neat. Okay, so once once I know that it is doing what I want it to do, I'll release that to GRC's newsgroup gang, and we'll find, I'm sure, the various things that I've missed. You know, th- cosmetic things, thing, you know, logging things, who knows what. I'll get those fixed, and then we'll move the spin right from alpha to beta. When we're there... Anyone who owns Spinrite will be able to download the DOS executable that I've been developing and which everyone's been testing. Since I won't yet have it packaged as a turnkey Windows app, you'll need to use GRC's init disk or read speed or you know, arrange to boot your own DOS however you want to. Um, and, and then you'll be able to run that DOS executable and it will be the real Spinrite 6.1, just as it's, fi- as it's finally going to be. Um, something else happened last week that was interesting. Although we won't get to high-speed native USB support for Spinrite until somewhere in version 7. I'm thinking 7.1, only because I don't want to delay 7.0, uh, which will be the first Spinrite ever to be uh, to be bootable over UEFI. I want to get that out as, as quickly as possible, and, and there's no reason to hold it because 7.1 will be free for everybody anyway. So um, I designed Spinrite 6.1, today's the forthcoming Spinrite, to work with any size USB drive 
through the motherboard's BIOS, as it always has, but now with no size limitations, if the motherboard supports it, and many do. But it occurred to me that I had never explicitly asked any of our testers to try attaching a huge drive larger than 2.2 terabytes, which is the largest drive that's addressable with 32 bits. you got to have more than 32 bits to go beyond 2.2 terabytes. That's why the old-style uh, uh, master boot record, the MBR, that only has 32-bit size fields uh, in, in its definition, which is why you can't use an MBR on a drive greater than 2.2 terabytes. Um, anyway, I, I had never asked them to try putting to attach a huge external drive to a USB port to confirm whether Spinrite sees the large drive and can indeed work with it. That is, today, the Spinrite 6.1 we're going to be getting. And it turns out we learned that it does and it can. In the show notes for any prospective Spinrite 6.1 owners, I've got some screenshots which our testers, uh, which two of our testers provided. Um, the, and I'm looking uh, at them, and thank you, Leo, for them being on screen now. Uh, highlighted at the bottom of a list of, of different drives on this one person's system, we see a 4.0 terabyte drive, which will be interfaced through the BIOS. You notice the first five drives are AHCI, so that's Spinrite's direct hardware access to the AHCI chip itself, which it now knows how to talk to. Um, so, but but then the lower four drives are, are have been connected to USB ports through the BIOS. So we have a four terabyte drive, and Spinrite through the BIOS will be able to scan that drive in thirty point one hours. Then in the next slide, he's run the benchmark, the full benchmark on that drive, which allows it to perform a a a finer grained performance analysis and and so spinrite's estimation was revised to 29.45 hours <clears throat> and, and we can see the the various speeds at, at which spinrite can talk to that four terabyte drive so while you know while 30 hours is not fast um it used to be 30 months for a drive this size so, you know, it's <laughs> a doing, lot faster. <laughs> we're doing way, wow. way better, way better than, than we used to. Um, and in fact, uh, in the on the next screen, uh, on the next page is, a, is somebody else who provided uh, a, a snapshot. Um, they show a three terabyte drive that Spinrite estimates it will scan in 10.1 hours. So that's way faster. So so the, the lesson there is it is a function of the BIOS. Both BIOSes allow Spinrite to see a, a drive larger than 2.2 terabytes, in one case 4 terabytes, in the other 3 terabytes. But this second one can do a, a 3 terabyte drive in 10 hours, which is a lot faster than a 4 terabyte drive in 30 hours. So uh, your speed will vary. Um, and in fact, we do see uh, on that second uh, that that that's, that second slide, he had a one terabyte drive attached through AHCI, so it was a SATA drive where we see it doing one terabyte in thirty minutes, and that exactly corresponds to my estimate. Remember that I expected that we would the, the my my newer estimation was that we would 
Spinrite would probably be able to do two terabytes per hour. And that's what we're seeing consistently, two terabytes per hour, or in this case, here it is showing one terabyte in half an hour. So uh, Spinrite 6.1 will finally be uh, easy and practical to use again on today's very large drives. And even before we get to 7, Spinrite 7 and 7.1, where we've got hardware support for USB, that's where we'll be able to run USB 3 at the same speed as SATA because it is as fast. And that At that point, external drives will be able to run as fast as internal drives. Anyway, I'm having a ball. Yeah, um, that's, a, speak- that's a huge improvement. And it was a disadvantage using Spinrite spin on, a, on a giant drive as it would take forever. Oh, you, yeah, it wasn't day, practical. A day it just, is, not, is not, I mean, that's a day and a half is totally doable. Totally. You, and you could certainly, like, run it over the weekend yeah, if, if exactly. you had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, we're getting there. Yay. Okay, now, uh, I want to take a moment to talk about a beautiful little affordable $120 plus shipping single board computer that I w- I'm starting to use as of, Sunday, last Sunday, which I'll be using for Spinrite's development going forward. It's called Zima Board, Z-I-M-A-B-O-A-R-D. And in many ways, it's the perfect little platform for Spinrite. I'll get to that in a second. To get Spinrite to the point where it is today, which is its ability to talk directly to any and all PC hardware owned by every single one of our hundreds of Spinrite development testers, and I should note, we currently have 367 registered testers in GRC's GitLab instance. So that's the population of of, of people who have been testing Spinrite so far. Um, I have been gladly purchasing innumerable old motherboards and drives from eBay. This has been going on for the last year. When I've been unable to duplicate some obscure problem that any of our hundreds of testers were experiencing out in the field, buying what they had was often the only way to get to the bottom of some really bizarre behavior. So that's what I would do. But that's all now behind us. At least until Spinrite starts being used by its entire owner base, uh, I do fully expect that I will encounter of some new mysteries, and I will deal with those as they come along. But that's you know that's the nature of bypassing the BIOS. Now that we're talking to the hardware, there's obscure hardware out there, but boy, I've seen a lot of it. I think it's clear that we've reached the ninety nine point nine 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 percent point. So it's time for the next stage. What I wanted going forward was a completely silent testing platform. And this little Zima board looks perfect for that. No more incessant whirring fan noise while I'm trying to focus. The Zima board is fanless with a custom heat sink fin design and just the right number of ports and expandability. It started out on Kickstarter where it was 4,905% overfunded. In other words, more, more than more than forty nine yes, more than forty nine times the number of project backers that they were hoping for. People went nuts over it, and it's now a going commercial concern. Through the years, the recurring question that we've been asked over and over is what GRC would recommend as a perfect PC platform for running Spinrite 
on a drive yeah. in lieu in lieu of dedicating someone's main machine to that. Te- yeah. And, yes. and I found a few desktops, the ones I own, which won't work at all with SpinRack. So right. they're UEFI, I guess. And yes, know, and it won't be until seven that, yeah, that we're able to yeah. to run there. So this is a, this is an answer to a question I've been meaning to ask you. This is great. If you were going to do, if you want to run SpinRight, and you know you do it enough, it's worth spending one hundred nineteen bucks to get a little machine to do it. Yes, and and many people also have inventories of drives, like like right. drives that that they've taken out of service, and so you know. So this allows you to run Spinrite at f- absolute full-on speed um, without tying up any of your other resources, as you said, for $119. Do you do, so, uh, do you put Windows on it or you just run FreeDOS on it? So I, 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 I will get there. Okay. Um, so years ago, when I was writing the Tech Talk column for InfoWorld magazine, I stumbled upon a wonderful motherboard the ultimate keyboard, an RLL controller, and MFM drives that worked perfectly under RLL encoding. So I conceived of something I called Steve's Dream Machine. It was a hit with my column's readers. Uh, a PC supplier, Northgate Computer Systems, took up the idea of purchasing and bundling all the components and offering them as Steve's Dream Machine. What I think I found here with this Zima board is Steve's Dream SBC, single board computer. It is 100% Intel chipset, with the exception of its dual gig network adapter, which is a Realtek 8168 chip. Now, it turns out that's perfect for my development needs since I have DOS network drivers for that chip. It has a pair of 6 gigabit SATA 3 connectors with a cable to provide power for one drive, but you can for $4 you can get a dual a dual power uh, cable. It has a pair of USB 3.0 ports. So Spinrite will be able to run drives attached to either SATA or USB 3. And it has a single PCIe uh, times 4 connector for the expansion of anything else. That could be a PCIe to IDE adapter if Spinrite needed to repair any older IDE drives or an NVMe adapter if Spinrite needed to be run on NVMe drives once they are supported and they will be under version 7. It has built-in video through a mini display port which can do 4K video at 60 hertz. And critically, the Zima board offers both UEFI and traditional BIOS support. It has a very comfortable award BIOS with all the bells and whistles, you know, uh, drive boot order and so forth, everything that, you know, old DOS hands are, are, are hoping to see, so that Spinrite will be able to boot free DOS and run without trouble. It could boot from an attached USB thumb drive, and I've done that, if you wanted to leave the Debian-derived CASA OS Linux that's shipped with the board in place. Or FreeDOS and Spinrite could be installed onto the board's uh, built-in 16-gig eMMC drive. That's what I'll be doing. Either way... I'll be able to use the same platform for Spinrite's future development under EF uh, under UEFI, so it's perfect for both for both now and for what's next. 
There are three Zima board models, which vary in speed and size. But the smallest of the three is what I purchased because it's enough for doing stuff with DOS. I have two of them now, one for each of my locations. As I mentioned, the smallest of the three contains a 16-gig eMMC drive, which is preloaded with a Debian Linux variant, which they call CASA OS. The board is broadly compatible, able to run any Intel OS, Linux, Windows, PFSense, OpenWRT, NAS software, and anything else. And you know, they sort of have it targeted at, at your own cloud uh, or multi-drive NASs and so forth. If you go to zimaboard.com, if you click on the Order Now button on the home page, and then again on the page that comes up, you'll get to the place where you set the quantity and the model number you want. If you scroll down that third page to the bottom, you'll find a buy one, get one free offer ah. that explain that explain. well, it, it's not a free, an, another free Zima board, but it's a free power adapter. It, it, they, they, they say buy Zima board and get a free 12-volt, 3-amp oh, power you, adapter. You need that, right? Yeah. Which you need that anyway, and that yeah. saves you 12 or $15 or something. So that's what I would recommend. There's a 10% off discount coupon available, but you probably can't use both. Uh, as I mentioned, the Zima board comes with cabling to supply power to a single SATA drive, but there's an optional dual SATA power cabling for $4. Actually, it's $3.90 uh, that you may want if you intend to power two SATA drives from the SBC. And that's also what I'm doing. So anyway, I now have a terrific answer to the often asked question, what does GRC recommend for running Spinrite standalone? I don't think you can do better than that. Just nice. a, and I, I've, I mean, I've been using it. It's just beautiful. You'll, you'll, you'll need a mini DisplayPort cable to, uh, to a DisplayPort uh, monitor. Uh, and then the way they have it, the way they, they suggest you set it up is you plug it into your router and... Uh, and then you use a browser to talk to it. So it, I guess it boots up with a, you know, it, it boots up this Debian Linux variant with a web server running and waiting to be connected and then brings up some sort of a UI. I just, I didn't do any of that. I just blew it off and, and used FDisk to, to zero the partition and, and made a bootable DOS because that's what I'll be using. But, you know, there is much more for anybody who's interested. So it's just a, you know, it's a beautiful solution for, for Spinrite and other things that I thought our listeners would find interesting. And Leo, I'm gonna I'm out of breath, so let's uh, <laughs> let's take our last break. Then we'll then we'll do closing the loop, and we'll talk about uh, source port randomization and a mistake that the Linux kernel made. Okay, you took my breath away with that thing. That's a really cool. I can see why That's they really, sold so many. You can't get a Raspberry Pi right now, so if no. you get any single board thing for your projects this this looks like a great uh choice uh let us talk about our fine sponsor bitwarden we know you know <laughs> you should be using a password manager right yes you should the question is which one should you use there's lots of choices out there i will tell you why i use bitwarden and happily and love it and maybe even why your business should use Bitwarden. Okay. Uh, I love it because it's open source. I think that's really kind of table stakes for a password manager. You got to be able to look at the source code. Not everybody's Steve Gibson who can go to Joe Segrist and say, show me what you're up to. If you've got an open source project, even if you can't 
you know, examine the source code. You know that others are. So that's really important. It's cross-platform. Got to be. Windows, Mac, Linux, iOS, Android. Works with everything you've got. It can be used at home, but it also can be used at work. They have an enterprise plan. And, of course, it could be used on your phone uh, on the go. And it's trusted by millions. I think Bitwarden is the only one that satisfies all of these criteria. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials. And by the way, not just credentials, not just passwords. I put serial numbers in there, social security numbers, images of my driver's license and my passport, anything that I want to keep at all times on my device, but I don't want to be you know, available to any Tom, Dick, or Harry. That's when I put it in Bitwarden. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I think we've mentioned that before. Bitwarden would like to remind everyone that in in the interest of protecting yourself and the Internet, you should use strong passwords, ideally passwords so strong, so random, that you could never remember them in a million years. Bitwarden generates those for you. Random, absolutely lengthy, as long as you want passwords that are completely... Uh, random combination of numbers, upper and lowercase letters, uh, punctuation. Of course, you can, you know, I hate to say it, there's still some sites that say, well, it can't be more than eight characters. And you can narrow it down if you need to. But, you know, use the max you can on any site. It also uh, is important, I think we all agree, to enable multi-factor authentication on everything that will let it. I still get calls every week from somebody who's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter has been hacked to see, why aren't you using two-factor? And most importantly, use it on Bitwarden, right? <laughs> use use two-factor, preferably not SMS messaging, but an authentic, time-based, one-time password system like Google's Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator so that, or Authy, so that you know, you, you've got it doubly locked down. So you got to keep your software up to date. We talk about that all the time. You want to make sure you have trained your staff and your brain to recognize phishing attempts. Every one of us, however, no matter how sophisticated, from time to time goes, oh, yeah, I'll click, oh, hold on. That's okay as long as you do that, oh, hold on. Because <laughs> if you click it, yeah, then you're in trouble. Weak or stolen passwords are actually the majority of successful hacking attempts. Uh, so use strong, unique passwords for every account that protects you, that protects your business. And Bitwarden will do this all for you. It will not fill. We were talking last week about how a password manager will save you from phishing attacks because it will not auto fill on sites that aren't that look the same but aren't the same. Enabling two step logins on Bitwarden improves the security of your password vault with options like verification through email or an authenticator app available for all accounts. Or as I do, and I have it right here on my. I have it hanging around my neck. I use a Fido2 or a YubiKey. This is a YubiKey. Uh, and by the way, premium subscriptions use this. I, this is what I use for Bitwarden. It's one of the reasons I pay $10 a year. <laughs> one, because I want to support Bitwarden, but two, because I want to use my YubiKey. So it's not, you know, you can't get into my Bitwarden vault without this YubiKey. And it's hanging around my neck. So good luck. Premium subscribers also can have Bitwarden generate TOTP authentication codes for your account, adding strength to your passwords. So you can also do that right within Bitwarden. Bitwarden supports security for all with full-featured free accounts, free for everyone, every time, everywhere, 
forever. That's really important. They're never going to pull back on that. I asked them because, you know, our another very well-known password manager backed off on its free accounts and it really peeved people. I said, are you going to ever, you know, could that? They said, no, no, because we're open source, that's our business model, free. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't stop it if, if we wanted to. People would just fork it and go on. So we free is important to Bitwarden's business model because they want to get you into the Bitwarden ecosystem. Because I'll tell you why. Your business can use Bitwarden. And it always starts with that free personal account. Let's say I wanted to add Bitwarden to my office. I say, everybody, get your free Bitwarden account. Okay, now you've got your personal account. Now, join the organization account. So you get the best of both worlds. You get the personal password protection, completely separate, but you get your business password protection. And by the way, Bitwarden for business is so great. You get Bitwarden Send, which is a fully encrypted method to transmit sensitive information, whether text or files. How many times do people email stuff like tax records? It should not be emailed. It will generate unique and secure passwords for every site, enterprise-grade security, GDPR-compliant, CCPA, HIPAA, SOC 2-compliant. They recently added even more enterprise capability by adding SKIM support. That's good for provisioning and managing your users. So let me talk about the, the enterprise plans. There's a Teams organization option. That's just $3 a month per user. Bigger company, you would want to use the enterprise option. The enterprise organization plan, $5 a month per user. These add the ability to share securely share data with coworkers across departments, the entire company. Uh, you know, here's the contract, and it's secure. It's private. It's protected. Individuals, of course, that basic free account, use it forever. Unlimited number of passwords across every platform. Worth upgrading the premium account, less than a buck a month. Uh, I just do it to support them. There's also, if you want your whole family to use it, $3.33 a month. That's all it costs. You get up to six users, all the premium features. Look, I know if you listen to Secure Now, you're using a password manager. If you're not, or more importantly, if family and friends are not, please tell them about Bitwarden, the only open source cross-platform password manager that you can use at home, on the go, at work, that's trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. It's free forever for the basic account. If you want to try the Teams or Enterprise plan, they have a free trial. Just go to bitwarden.com slash twit. I love it. It it works great. Works better than anything else I've ever used. I've used them all, by the way. I have accounts with every, almost every password manager, including the open source and the free ones and all that stuff. And... This is the one I always come back to because it just, it works great everywhere. Bitwarden.com slash twit. I trust Bitwarden. They're the best. Bitwarden.com slash twit. Free forever for individuals. Uh, although, you know, cut them, a, cut them a $10 a year because it's just nice to support them. They're doing good work. And I didn't even mention the the uh, the new thing where you can have the... Um, it auto generate a username, and they work with Fastmail, by the way, as well as some other providers to generate a, uh, a, a unique email account that is just for that particular account. Another great way to do security. All right, back to you, Steve. I want to hear all about address, random address access. Yes, uh, got some feedback to share first. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, one of our listeners, uh, Zendo Deb. Uh, said something that I thought was brilliant. He said, at SGGRC, RE CAPTCHA discussion from Security Now 891, that was last week, yeah. he said, I've wondered if using Firefox makes it worse, since Firefox is now stovepiping cookies 
especially third-party cookies. So when you show up at a new site, Google can't find a cookie. Oh. That is brilliant. That's brilliant. what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. There's no question. That's why we Firefox users are saying, hey, why am I having to cl- click on chickens constantly or, yeah. or you know, fuzzy bears or whatever it is? Uh, it's yeah, it is a consequence of the fact that uh, Google is highly rate ranking the presence of their own cookie as one of the signals that mm-hmm. they're using. And when you go to a site that you haven't been to before, there's no Google cookie there. Thanks to the per site uh, stovepiping that Firefox is now doing. So very, very clever observation. Thank you, Zendo. Uh, Robin R said, hi, Steve, with all these buffer overflow and use after free issues, I've seen talk of getting development to switch to Rust. My question to you is what kind of concerns or defensive techniques do you do when developing an assembly? Is it the fact that you are so low level, you are forced to be aware of everything and thus don't fall into the same traps? Additionally, would you change anything with a piece of software that you knew would be always on and be available on the Internet? So, and I thought about this for a while. So, first of all, I do have a piece of software which is always on and available on the internet, and that's GRC's server. It is laced with uh, a lot of my project code that you know shields up itself. That probably the most complex asynchronous thing I've written, which is always online, is the DNS the DNS cacheability or uh, spoofability test. That thing has. Uh, all kinds of asynchronous queries off to individual servers as, as, it, disco- as it discovers them. Uh, lots of things happening dynamically. Um, I have the same problems that anybody writing in C would have, which is I, I, uh, to do that, I create a linked list of tasks and each of the objects in that that are pointed to in the linked list is a structure which i allocate in ram which contains the details of where that task is and what's going on um that those have dynamically created lists of query of outstanding queries and their responses i don't know how many there will be so th- so that's a list so it's a an extremely dynamic construction and it's been running for many many years and it's never had a bug or crashed so i think the advantage i have is i'm first of all one developer so i don't have a problem explaining anything to myself uh and uh it it, while there's a lot going on it's still not nearly as complicated as what has happened to today's browsers which are just like I don't know if there's any one person whose single mind is able to encompass to encompass the entire thing, and the same is certainly true for operating systems. So, so um, I am at a low level. I'm at a, essentially at the level that C operates because all the things I've just described is exactly how I would code something were I coding in C. There's not that big a difference. I so think you the, the only- you do in an assembler, you're doing effectively your own malloc. Uh, you're allocating memory. You have to remember. And I'm, I'm doing not, reference, and I'm doing my own reference counting. You're, yeah, so like I, you yeah. got to know when and, you can throw. You do your own garbage collection. In other words, yep. You don't yep. and and you don't. You know, the, the off by one 
problem probably is a little bit less of a problem for you because you're so intimately connected with what's going on. I think some of the problems that come from high-level languages is they're so ins- the programmers are so insulated from what's going on that they they can make it's easy for them to make a mistake. Well, and and we talked, for example, about Microsoft's decision to use Electron. Uh, as their platform for implementing Teams. The problem is that that's JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. You don't have to be a, you know, a power coder in order for something to look like it's working in JavaScript. And so I think, so exactly as you say, Leo, I think that does, that does tend to admit less capable or less rigorous programmers. The, the, the lower level the language, the more careful you need to be, or it's very obvious that, yeah, you, you know, see I mean, something's going to... Yeah. Yes. And I think yeah. also, uh, and Ru- the reason they're talking about Rust is, Rust is, is it, it is garbage collected, but it's very type, there's very type uh, constrained, you know, it's a static type system, and it really tries very hard to keep you from making mistakes. Every time we see languages like that, like Ada, uh, I think programmers... Appreciate it, but also don't like to use it. Yeah, know? exactly. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're like nanny languages. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I, yeah I, you know, that's a language, but boy, I don't want to code in that. That's, you know, Rust no is fun. impressive. And I guess, you know, what it's replacing, which is mostly C and uh, to some degree C++, um, is bad enough. So I guess <laughs> people who use Rust like it. Uh, and so, I played with it a little bit. It's very impressive, but there's a lot of boilerplate, a lot of extra code. It's like Java a little bit in that respect that uh, somebody like you and to some degree me, I don't want to spend a lot of time typing and all that crap. I just want to. And I think what's, I think what's going to happen is we'll get to the point where coders will not be given a choice. That is what, what, what we see happening is that is that we're getting to the point where We've got all the processing power we need. It used to be it used to be that we didn't have enough RAM and we didn't have enough speed to support the the um, the overhead. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the, exactly. To, to support the overhead of sophisticated languages that do a lot to protect. Uh, the way they're operating today, we do, and I think at some point there will be a browser that bites the bullet and says we're coding everything in Rust right. because we d- we're well, done with use after free errors. Period, <laughs> and we don't care if you don't if you don't like it. Remember, Rust was written by Mozilla. I mean, it comes from Mozilla. There's a reason. Right. It is you right. know very much for that. Uh, and by the way, once you compile it, Rust is ext- one of the reasons people like Rust is it's a systems level language. It can be as fast as C and C plus plus. So once you compile it, it's very efficient. And think of the upside, Leo. If you get paid by the line, of code. <laughs> uh, Rust is. I'm thrilled that Rust is now in the Linux kernel. That is a good thing for everybody yes. who uses Linux. I I completely agree. Yeah. I think that's yeah. neat. And the issue is really libraries uh, and support. Uh, and a lot of that's being handled now, so that's good. So I've got one for you here from Ben Hutton. He says, Steve, we often hear breaches could have been avoided through the implementation of a systematic software patching and update strategy. For enterprises, there are many solutions. While performing tech support for a relative today, I found IOBit Updater. He says, IOBit being a name I had previously trusted for the better part of a decade, was showing adverts for commercial products in the same, I know, in the same space 
as notifications for software updates. Finding this unacceptable, I looked for an alternative solution. I found one and expected to pay, but the customer, I'm sorry, the consumer slash home edition was free. And it seems like there are no limitations to speak of. Is there a solution you would suggest for Windows users for installing updates, free or otherwise? The solution I found looked suspicious, but had attained leader in Gartner's Magic Quadrant for patch management summer 2022. The solution I found is patch my PC. Huh. He says, only tried it today, so not an endorsement, but seems to do the job. And, and so, Leo, I have... I my particular approach is just to rely on individual apps to tell me when they need to be updated, and then I update them. You know, like Notepad plus plus is my God. Would you would the guy just leave it alone, please? Because it keeps wanting to update itself. <laughs> um, but 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 normally apps today take care of that, uh, and it looks like what what Ben's talking about is some sort of a. You know, an an overwatcher who does it, who rifles through your system, looks at all the apps you've got installed, checks their versions, checks to see whether that's the latest, and then like gets involved in like telling you that you need updates. I just kind of thought maybe from your your tech guy stuff on the weekends. Not uh, heard of this one. The good news is Microsoft finally is acknowledging the need for this and has a package manager, believe it or not, called Winget. Uh, which, you know how package managers on Linux will manage uh, updates for everything on your system, including system right. updates. That's the idea of, of Winget. Uh, it's new, relatively, so I'm not sure how complete it is. So um, it would be things through the Microsoft Store, probably. Um, actually, that's an interesting question. Now, the store does its own updates automatically. I think oh. I think Winget is, is, goes beyond that. You do get it from the Microsoft Store. Uh, I, I'll have to ask Paul uh, f- about that, but I think my sense is Winget is a full, or intended to be a full package manager uh, for Windows. So how would it know about? I mean, like in the case of our our Unixes and Linuxes, we have you install we have a repository because you install through the package manager, right? So the package manager, as you install stuff, makes uh... a database of installed stuff, and then when you do an apt get update or whatever, it will. Look at that database, see what's been installed, check for new versions. It does that in the repositories, exactly. So you'd uh-huh. need, you would need some sort of Microsoft-maintained database of application versions, hmm. uh, and then you could download them. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why it doesn't yet do everything, but uh, it does create these manifests. Um, it has sources, source repositories. So I th- I'm I'm hopeful, but I'll have to take a look. I haven't looked at Patch My PC. It, I think it's an unfortunate name, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, you know, uh, doesn't mean it doesn't work well. It looks like it's for Microsoft's own endpoint manager. So uh, it it's, ah. it sounds like it, it, it. And in most of these guys, I'm looking at the engineers are at Microsoft MVPs and so forth. So it says uh, it looks similar to WinGet, to be honest with you. Uh, 710 yeah. supported products, you know. I mean, when you're looking at Debian and and, uh, and you're looking at apps, it's more than 10,000 packages. Yes, knows yes. About. I mean, it's, it's this is a remarkable ecosystem on the on the Linux side. I'd love yeah. to see Windows get to that point. Yeah. Okay, J, JT Redhill, 
He said, a quick question. You or Leo mentioned in a side comment a couple episodes back that you block origin can block those damn GDPR cookie <laughs> pop-ups. He said, God I've damn tried. Him. Hey, hit him. Oh, hit him. I, she says, I tried clicking on the block all pop-ups button. He says, I use Chrome, by the way, but that doesn't do it. Can you please tell me how you do this, or if there's another alternative that you know that you know of? I thought I showed this on the show, but maybe I showed it afterwards. You want to go to uBlock Origins filter lists, and then go down and expand annoyances. So there's a whole, ah. and it's hidden. There's a whole bunch of filters underneath annoyances. I check uBlock filters annoyances and fanboys annoyances, and fanboys in- incorporates the easy list cookie list. And while it's not 100%, it's 90% at least uh, of all those uh, of the, all those uh, cookie pop-ups. The, the, the oh, cookie. nice. Yeah. I, I didn't know that either. Yeah. So I'm glad we asked it's and, a nice and thing. told us. You know, as you know, uh, out of the box, uBlock Origin does everything you'd want it to do. But it can do yep. a whole lot more if you go into the filter lists. They support a massive number of uh, filter lists. I don't think you need to add them all, but that's that's a couple you might want to. Might want to Good old it. Gore Hill. Amazing. Yeah. You know, I can imagine. I, I, I see him with a long beard living uh-huh, in a exactly. cabin somewhere up in the Pacific Northeast, Northwest. And, Arr, get off my <laughs> get, get out of my cave. He's probably nothing like that, but he's that, you know, that's what I think of. Yeah. He's like a Dvorak curmudgeon, I think. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Joel. Uh, Clermont, he said, just listen to SN8 or 890 about Google Analytics in the EU and thought you might be interested to learn about Fathom Analytics. It's usedfathom.com, U-S-E-F-A-T-H-O-M.com. They are designed from the ground up around privacy and designed their infrastructure to comply with GDPR, including an option to have your data never leave the EU. I love this. I wanted to use this. Yep. He says, I have switched all my sites over to it a year ago and love it. Uh, And then I, I have a link to his blog uh, which is really good, and I com- I recommend it to our listeners, titled Why I Switched to Fandom Analytics. It turns out it does more – no, wait. It does a better job with less of the random cruft that uh, that analytics – he said that analytics had all kinds of crap that he didn't need. Right. But what this one does, it does better than Google Analytics was what was doing in, in his – in his uh, opinion. So yeah. we have something that will give our sites analytics with a- and be privacy respecting of our users. I will uh, try to convince our team to use it. We still yeah, use they, GA, I'm sorry ta- to say. Have, have them take a look at it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Blaine Trammell said, have you, ta- uh, you talked about the safety of public Wi-Fi, but that article only talked about browser traffic. So if you're only using a web browser, then yes, most likely safe. But if you're using apps that communicate unencrypted for their work, and apps on mobile devices might be making non-TLS requests, so I would say still not safe without a VPN. He says, have to remember someone in China could hack the Wi-Fi router in San Francisco and capture the traffic. You do not need to travel and be local. So anyway, I thought that was worth noting that he's absolutely right. I was thinking entirely of bra- of everything being done through the browser with 
with the fact that the world has switched to HTTPS. But it certainly is the case that you could have an app. I mean, I hope you wouldn't, but you could have an app that just says, ah, you know, nobody's probably looking and does its thing, whatever it might be, in the clear. So anyway, Blaine, thank you. That is a, certainly a good point. Um, Bob uh, Karen said, hi, Steve. In ref to SN891 last week, as an IT consultant, and I know, uh, I guess he says, I am an IT consultant, and I never use public Wi-Fi. Not so much from fear of hacking from someone else on the same Wi-Fi, but from the provider of the Wi-Fi itself. An IT person who runs it could set up a proxy or man in the middle much easier and scrape all data through it. I always tell my clients, turn the hotspot on your phone on and use that for your laptop if needed. I feel there's much less chance of Verizon trying to steal my traffic than some local coffee shop IT guy or even a big airport. Unlimited data is very common now on cell plans anyway. Thanks for the great show for all these years, Bob. So anyway, I just wanted to share that idea. I I, uh, often use my iPhone's hotspot when I'm somewhere that, you know, I don't have Wi-Fi and I, I you know, want, want, want to uh, have access. And what I promise will be the last uh, CPE comment, but I liked it because there was a little more information. David Lemire said, I'll trouble at SGGRC with one more CISSP CPE comment. When I was way behind on CPEs for my first year of certification, I found a blog post on the ISC website that specifically listed your podcast among a number that could count for free CPEs. He said, really saved my behind. So I just wanted to mention that it's not that they're like allowing it. They're they're formally endorsing security now as a source of of ongoing uh, education. Good. That's great. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. Really Very happy cool. to hear that. I just wanted to add the uh, thanks to the Discord. Um, ah. The uh, WinGet repository is actually a GitHub repo, and you can submit your software just as a, a pull request in the repository and say, "Hey, I'd like you to manage my updates." So, ah, nice. Uh, a really, uh, I think this ultimately could be really good if the community gets behind it. Uh, it's in the Microsoft GitHub repo, WinGet packages. Uh, and at this point, that's not built into Windows? That, the, no, the, I don't think so. You have to get it. But you can get it for the Windows Store. Uh, I would just love to see it just become the default way to install uh, software or yeah, maybe well, hooked yeah, into because the Windows I, Store, you know? Yeah, and, and I was going to say that if, it, if at some point we could application developers could depend upon that being present, then we, then we, we could eliminate all of the, exactly. you know, individual ch- check for update yeah. stuff. So annoying. Yeah. This is so much better. Um, thank you, EM, uh, for that. I appreciate this. Why we love our yeah. club twit members. Appreciate it. EM. Okay. So an unintended side effect in Linux, as we know, internet protocol address addresses endpoints by IP address and at an IP address we have a 16-bit port number which identifies specific services operated at that IP address. So an end-to-end connection will have an IP address and port on one end you know like the source IP and source port 
and an IP address and port on the other end, the destination IP and port. At the receiving end, where a client is connecting to a web service, like, you know, or, or to a service like web, email, or whatever, the port, as we know, is typically well known 443, 25, 110, whatever. And on the client's connection initiating end, it has long been the case that when a client asks its operating system for a new outbound connection, the OS's TCP IP network stack simply moves linearly upward, starting above the reserved service port range uh, at port 1025, sometimes 1024, and incrementing um, um, and, and incrementing numbers until some upper limit, perhaps all the way up to 65535, is wrapped before wrapping around. So traditionally, the way to all TCP IP network stacks worked, when, when client um, applications asked for to initiate a new outbound connection, the stack would simply initiate the next free port in line and and you often see sequential numbered ports in blocks like like if you do a a, a a netstat command on your system you know they're not just scattered randomly they're they're in a linear list okay but 11 years ago back in 2011 having the having the os allocating client connection ports which is to say you know the source ports linearly was seen as a potential problem since it made the next ports to be used guessable by an adversary. And that guessability might allow adversaries to hijack connections by just like assuming what they were going to be, assuming what the, what, what the clients, the uh, IP and source port would be. That's the only way you designate an endpoint. So if a bad guy injected traffic, sent traffic toward the destination, there's no way to differentiate it from the traffic coming from the legitimate source. Uh, sequence numbers comes into play there also for, for, for TCP connections, but we've already talked about all that in the past. So um, we know that this is all possible since it was precisely the lack of source port randomization that alarmed Dan Kaminsky about the spoofability of DNS servers Internet-wide. Attackers could blindly spoof replies by guessing the linearly allocated source ports of outstanding DNS queries. So in response to this perceived threat, RFC 6056 was published by the IETF titled Recommendations for Transport Protocol Port Randomization. And its abstract, the abstract of the RFC reads, During the past few years, awareness has been raised about a number of blind attacks that can be performed against transmission control protocol, you know, TCP, and similar protocols. The consequences of these attacks range from throughput reduction to broken connections or data corruption. These attacks rely on the attacker's ability to guess or know the five-tuple protocol, source address, destination address, source port, destination port. 
that identifies the transport protocol instance to be attacked. This document describes a number of simple and efficient methods for the selection of the client port number, such as the possibility of an attacker guessing the exact value, or I'm sorry, such that the possibility of an attacker guessing the exact value is reduced. While this is not a replacement for cryptographic methods for protecting the transport protocol instance, the aforementioned port selection algorithms provide improved security with very little effort and without any key management overhead. The algorithms described in this document, there are five of them, are local policies that may be incrementally deployed and do not violate the specifications of any of the transport protocols that may benefit from them, such as TCP, UDP, UDP Lite, Stream Control Transmission Protocol, Datagram Congestion Control <laughs> Protocol, and RTP. As they say, provided that RTP application explicitly signals the RTP and RTCP port numbers. So that's what they said. So the so the idea was, you know, the RFCs, Leo, they're nothing if not thorough. So, so a uh, great thing to read if you're getting a little sleep deprived. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's how I learned all this stuff in the early days was literally sat down. Okay, RFC read one. the RFC. Oh, God. So the idea was since the source port chosen by the OS doesn't matter at all. There is no reason not to be a lot more clever when choosing the next one. RFC 6056 presents five different algorithms for doing just that. And it states that the so-called double hash port selection algorithm offers the best trade-off. Consequently, it was recently adopted with minor modifications in the Linux kernel starting with kernel version 5.12 RC1. And this prompted a trio of industrious researchers at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem to take a look at Linux's result. What they found was not good. Their paper titled Device Tracking via Linux's new TCP source port selection algorithm, unquote, will be presented during the 32nd Usenix Security Symposium, which is upcoming, but I have the paper now. They explain in their abstract, which is all that's worth sharing here because we'll see what happened. They said, we describe a tracking technique for Linux devices, exploiting a new TCP source port generation mechanism recently introduced to the Linux kernel. This mechanism is based on an algorithm standardized in RFC 6056 for boosting security by better randomizing port selection. Our technique detects collisions in a hash function used in the said algorithm based on sampling TCP source ports generated in an attacker-prescribed manner. These hash collisions depend solely on a per-device key, and thus the set of collisions forms a device ID that allows tracking devices across browsers, browser privacy modes, containers, and IPv4 v6 networks, including some VPNs. 
They said it can distinguish among devices with identical hardware and software and lasts until the device restarts. We implemented this technique and then tested it using tracking servers in two different locations and with Linux devices on various networks. We also tested it on an Android device that we patched to introduce the new port selection algorithm. And by the way, Android was going to adopt it, but changed its mind when this happened. The tracking technique works in real-life conditions, and we report detailed findings about it, including its dwell time, scalability, and success rate in different network types. And finally, we worked with the Linux kernel team to mitigate the exploit, resulting in a security patch introduced in May of 2022 to the Linux kernel. And we provide recommendations for better securing the port selection algorithm in the paper. So, the principle that I wanted to highlight and that we keep seeing playing out over and over is that things that once seemed to be secure enough, mostly because we weren't trying as hard as possible, are no longer considered to be so. The mess with modern processor microarchitectures, Spectre and Meltdown and the rest, is a perfect example. For quite some time, we were all happily living with the way our processors worked and with all of the performance those optimizations delivered. But that all ended overnight when some very clever academic researchers started looking much more closely. Another example is DRAM. Same story there. Everything seemed fine until researchers began wondering whether too many bits may have been squeezed into too small a space and whether that might create some adjacent row interference. And sure enough, we know what the consequence of that was. Similarly, the issue of IP source port assignment was happily ignored. Then Dan Kaminsky realized that it could be a disaster for DNS. So operating systems moved to change to ephemeral key-based pseudo-random assignment. And then these clever researchers said, ah, not so fast, and discovered that there's a unique per-machine pattern that can be used for tracking. Wow. I wonder what will be next. <laughs> Stay tuned to this podcast to find out. Never underestimate the uh, ingenuity and perseverance of a hacker. That's just the rule there. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that is the case. And yes. so all these things, we, we lived with them for years, sometimes decades. And then someone said, I don't Not know so about fast. that. Not so fast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Mr. Gibson, you're a gem, a jewel. And uh, if I could say it in assembler code, I would, but I'm sending you and a and book. An, and an, an old relic. <laughs> an old relic. I'm sending you two books. I told you about one. I'm sending you another I just thought of ah, that's entirely cool. in x86 assembler. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> no pros. No pros. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this book. Its uh, title is Exchange RAX, RAX. <laughs> and I, I no. think that's all you need to know. The author is XOR PD, and uh, <laughs> I just thought I'd send it to you because it's kind of it's kind of silly. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, Thank everybody you. You. should have an assembly language written uh, book in their on their shelf. 
just an assembler. Um, I th- I bet you. I'm actually really curious if you can look at it and you go, oh yeah, I know what that does. Oh yeah, yeah. oh that's cute. Oh I, oh, what a laugh. I bet you. I bet you'll laugh reading this. We'll Sounds see. great. Yeah, no kidding. Exactly my kind of puzzle. <laughs> you should show this to Lori. <laughs> anyway, Steve is the best. We are so glad we have him every Tuesday right here talking about security and technology in the most lucid way possible. He even makes RFCs seem entertaining. You'll <laughs> you'll find uh, you'll find us here at eleven a. I'm sorry, one thirty p.m. Pacific, right after Mac Break Weekly, 1.30 p.m. Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 UTC. Uh, if you follow Steve on Twitter, SGGRC, two reasons to do that. The show notes go there uh, right before the show so that you can download them and, and read them along. He also has them on his website. But you can also message him there. His DMs are open. If you've got thoughts or comments, that's where a lot of the feedback on the show comes from. GRC.com is the website to go to, Gibson Research Corporation, not only for SpinRight, and as you can see, uh, this is a, probably a good time to get spin, right? If you buy 6.0 right now, uh, you'll get 6.1, which is imminent. Uh, perhaps even participate in the testing. You could be the one that says, Steve, I found a, I found a flaw. You know, get a gold star on your forehead for, for the help him to help him out here. GRC.com. While you're there, of course, you can get a copy of the show. Steve has two unique versions, a 16 kilobit audio version which sounds a little bit like a Thomas Edison cylinder, but is has the one benefit it's small for the bandwidth impaired. We also have transcripts written from that 16-kilobit Edison cylinder uh, by Elaine Ferris. She uh, gives us beautiful transcripts that you can read along as you listen or use them to search for parts of the show. All of that's at grc.com, along with a 64-kilobit audio version, the full full-quality audio version, grc.com. Plus, check out all the other stuff he does if you want to try his uh, DNS caching utility and think about all the stuff going on behind the scenes in his server. Was the server written assembler? No, that's in C. Uh, so at uh, IIS, it's Microsoft's IIS, yeah. but, but it, ha- it has a really nifty add-on facility called ISAPI, uh, which oh, is yeah. IIS-API. API, yeah. And so it's a huge ISAPI. I've written a huge ISAPI extension, which is the shields up and the oh. certificate testing and, and all you know, all of the stuff that GRC site does and all of the e-commerce I wrote in, in Assembler also. Wow. So did you write glue code in C or C++ and then everything else can be in Assembler? Or no, just, just in Assembler. It, yeah, it turns out that the calling convention uh, for for the API is uh, you, you you all you have to do is set up the stack and ju- yeah. and just jump to a to a to a call so nice. it all works directly. Yep, it's a nice fe- you know it's a nice feeling when you are you're kind of, it's almost like you're looking into the machine and seeing it work and you and you and you get just, it and you understand it. It's I, pretty cool. I just like it. Yeah, yeah. I just I think yeah. that's why coders code is sure. that they you know at at any level you get a, a sense of satisfaction. But that's why I think that's why assembly language coders pursue this what seems a seemingly arcane art because you are writing in the computer's native tongue. You're yeah. you're you're exchanging RAX with RAX. You're doing you're doing it at the at the very base level of it, which is cool. Although it's also why I doubt I'll ever use I'll ever code ARM at a, in assembler because it just doesn't seem friendly. Uh, it's not. I mean the the you know risk reduced instruction set uh, computer as opposed to CISC 
complex instruction set computer. I like CISC. Well, you've learned all the all the instruction codes, right? You yeah. got them up here. So, yeah, uh, yeah and, and probably you can do in one instruction what RISC requires five for. I would, I guess, I would guess that's what it is, right? Is that you, yes? For, yeah. Well, for example, I, I I'm able to add two locations in memory with a single instruction, whereas RISC you have to load it and register, load the other one and register, add the two uh, together, and then store the result. Yeah, that's back powerful. Out. Yeah. yeah, so I get it. Yeah, yeah. A uh, store architecture. GRC.com. We have uh, copies of the show at our website. Uh, in fact, if you go to twit.tv slash sn, you'll see every show ever recorded, all 892 of them, uh, one after the other uh, there. Uh, you can also go to uh, YouTube. There's a Security Now YouTube feed that has all the shows uh, that we've done in video anyway uh, there, which is not all of them. Uh, and uh, probably the best way to do this, if you don't, you know, if you want to get all the old shows, you know, the feed only has the most recent 10 shows. If you want to get all the old shows, you got to go to the website. But if you just want to get the new show when it comes out, subscribe in your favorite podcast client, set it to auto-download, and you're just going to get it. And that way you can listen, you know, whenever you say, oh, i got a minute or two, let me listen to some security now, which I think a lot of people do. But, you know, if you want to listen on Tuesday, listen live, that's fine, too. I, the live.twit.tv is the live stream, irc.twit.tv to discuss it or of course in our uh, discord because a lot of club twit members in there as well thank you steve great job i appreciate it thank you my friend see you next time see you back here for the on the 18th wow i'm jason howell what do you get your favorite geek who already has everything well i know just the thing it's a club twit gift subscription of course Twit podcasts keep them informed and entertained with the most relevant tech news and podcasts available. And with a Club Twit subscription, they get even more. They get access to all of our podcasts ad-free, the members-only Discord, exclusive outtakes, behind-the-scenes and special content, and exclusive shows like Hands on Mac, Hands on Windows, and the Untitled Linux Show. You can purchase your geek's gift at twit.tv slash club twit, and they're going to thank you every day for it. Security now.